This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Dan Savage, The Progressive Magazine, The Young Turks, The David Pakman Show, The Jimmy Dore Show, The Majority Report, Mumia Abu-Jamal, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Unfuck It Up Project, and The Tom Hartman Program. And a note that if this episode makes you uncomfortable, then you make me uncomfortable. The pace of change right now on marriage equality is staggering. Rhode Island and Delaware both got marriage equality in the last couple of weeks. Minnesota, if marriage equality comes to Minnesota this week, will be the 12th state to achieve marriage equality in the United States and the third since the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on the Defense of Marriage Act, the Federal Defense of Marriage Act, and California's Proposition 8. The pace of change is staggering. And heartening and thrilling so little is going right right this is going very right and it is a little flabbergasting i remember saying to someone not too long ago that i didn't expect to see marriage equality in the united states in my lifetime i found it in an op-ed i wrote for the new york times that i was looking up to find something else and there it was me saying not too long ago that this would not happen in my lifetime and it is happening in my lifetime and what is driving this? What is making this happen? The very thing that the original gay, lesbian, bi, trans, civil rights activist identified as our secret weapon and the thing that would, would change everything, which is just people are fucking out now. People are out to their friends and families and coworkers and colleagues, and that changes everything. In Delaware, State Senator Karen Peterson, who has been in a lesbian relationship with a woman, Duh. For 24 years, was not out. She came out during the floor debate in the Senate. She said she wasn't sure what she was going to do. She's a very private person. Okay, your relationship is actually kind of public. Nobody says <laughs> straight people should have to hide their husbands and wives to keep their relationship, keep their private lives private. But 24 years, she's been with this woman. She's out to her friends and family. People know, but she wasn't publicly out. She wasn't politically out. And she said that before the floor debate, she wasn't sure if she would come out during the floor debate. She was going to listen to what the opposition had to say and make up her mind. And the opposition stood the floor of the Delaware State Senate and lied and said that being gay was a choice, being lesbian was a choice, that it was a sickness, that it was sinful, and that gay relationships, same-sex relationships, same-sex marriage, somehow imperiled or threatened the relationships of opposite-sex couples and straight couples. Here's what Delaware State Senator Karen Peterson said as she came out last week. We are what God made us. We do not need to be fixed. We are not broken. And I love this. If my happiness somehow demeans or diminishes your marriage, then you need to work on your marriage. Right fucking on and welcome out, fully out, the rest of the way out, to State Senator Karen Peterson. In Nevada, where they're debating repealing that state's ban on same-sex marriage, Okay, let's just pause for a second there. Nevada, Las Vegas, where you can get insta-married and insta-divorced, where prostitution is legal, somehow same-sex marriage is illegal because it's a threat to the sanctity of quickie marriages in roadside wedding chapels performed by busted Elvis impersonators. But anyway, they're debating repealing the ban on same-sex marriage in Nevada, and State Senator Kelvin Atkinson came out during a debate over repealing that state's ban and said, I am black and I am gay. And this was news to his colleagues and his constituents. And it is going to change things. 
After the governor signed the marriage equality bill last week in Rhode Island, here's what State Senator Donna Nesselbush had to say. She thanked all those who came up before it was safe to do so together. She said, we shattered the myths, we changed hearts and minds on this issue one at a time. That is it. In a nutshell, that is the success of the LGBT civil rights movement. We still got work to do. We got ended, a pass. We've got DADT to finish. The repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell was incomplete. It didn't cover trans people. Trans people can serve openly in the military in Canada and Israel and the United Kingdom, not in the United States. we got work to do all over the place, but we are winning. And we are winning on the issue that touches on the heart of who we are, which is about love. It's about love. It's about relationships. It's about family and recognizing that we can love, that our relationships are equal to and as valid as the relationships of heterosexuals and that our families deserve the same rights and protections and responsibilities. This cuts to the heart of what our movement has been about from the start. Sorry if I'm ranting a little bit. I'm just, I'm really excited. And as I speak to you, I am watching with one eye the debate via live stream in the Minnesota State Senate. Here's, you know, one of the ironies about Minnesota. Really quickly, a couple of years ago, when the Republicans controlled the Minnesota legislature, they pushed an anti-gay marriage amendment to Minnesota state constitution onto the ballot. And they put it on the ballot in 2012, hoping to drive turnout. You know, the same batshit haters who poured into voting booths in 2004 and approved anti-gay marriage amendments in states all over the country, which helped reelect George W. Bush. This was their strategy. They were going to do it again. And you know what happened? Voters in Minnesota rejected that amendment, and something partially as a result of the amendment appearing on the ballot, Democrats took back control of both houses of the legislature, Democrat in the governor's mansion. Here's the fruit of your hateful labor, Minnesota anti-gay haters, marriage equality, being the first state in the Midwest to approve it through the legislature. Iowa's got it, but Iowa got it from the Supreme Court ruling in the state of Iowa. Minnesota's going to be the first to get it through the legislature, first to get it to the democratic process. Congratulations, haters. Turning to the gall file for just a second, State Representative Peggy Scott, Republican of Andover, Minnesota, said this after marriage equality passed Minnesota House. My heart breaks for Minnesota, she said, crying on the floor of the House, in the State House in Minnesota. This is a divisive issue that divides our state. It's not what we need to be doing at this time. Where were the tears, Representative Scott? When you guys, when the Republicans and the anti-gay, quote-unquote, family values haters were pushing gay marriage onto the ballot and attempting to divide the state, it was a fine issue for you. You loved gay marriage when it divided the state in your favor. Now it seems to be dividing. The math seems to be working out. The division, the long division, working out in our favor. And suddenly, boodly hoodly hoo tears running down your face. Representative Scott's heart breaks for Minnesota, she says. You know who my heart breaks for? My heart breaks for the lesbian widow who's thrown out of her own partner's wedding. My heart breaks for the gay widow who loses the house that he shared with his partner for 40 years because an estranged cousin, thrice removed, shows up and has legal claim to it because their relationship isn't recognized under the law. You know, when we talk about same-sex marriage, we get bogged down in these conversations about banquet halls and bakers making cakes and florists we get talk, we caught up in these conversations about the rights and you know the, the ceremony the party and that's not where the rubber meets the road that's not really when it comes to same-sex marriage where gay or lesbian couples hearts are broken it's when they are discriminated against and the powers 
and rights of marriage are almost always most important at the worst moments of life, during a medical emergency, after the death of a spouse. That's when the rights, the most important ones, really kick in. And that's when the most damage is done to same-sex couples. It's not the florist who won't make arrangements for a gay wedding who really hurts a same-sex couple when they're vulnerable. It's a hospital administrator turning the partner away. As we saw recently in one case, having the male spouse of a gay man removed from his partner's room in handcuffs during a medical emergency. That's when hearts break, Representative Scott. Ding dong, Doma is dead. As you know, the Supreme Court just struck down the Defense of Marriage Act and, in so doing, moved America closer to realizing the goal of equality under the law. The decision is a huge victory for the gay rights movement, for gay and lesbian couples, for their children, and for all who believe in liberty and equality. The majority 5-4 to decision written by Justice Kennedy, who was joined by the four liberals on the bench, recognizes our evolving attitudes towards same-sex marriage and our evolving understanding of the meaning of equality. Then Kennedy zeroed in on the essential discriminatory purpose and effect of DOMA, and that is, he wrote, to impose a disadvantage, a separate status, and so a stigma upon all who enter into same-sex marriages. He also noted that DOMA humiliates tens of thousands of children now being raised by same-sex couples. Kennedy concluded that DOMA violates basic due process and equal protection principles of the Fifth Amendment and is thereby unconstitutional and now, thankfully, null and void. So hooray for Justice Kennedy and hooray for everyone who's participated in the great nonviolent revolution for LGBT rights. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Writing in the dissent for the Supreme Court ruling that struck down DOMA, Antonin Scalia got a little bit feisty, and he had a problem with certain aspects of what happened here. And so we're going we're gonna to spotlight a couple of his quotes and break them down and see if there's any intellectual merit to what he's saying. So the first comment from Scalia is, We have no power to decide this case. And even if we did, we have no power under the Constitution to invalidate, invalidate this democratically adopted legislation. The Court's errors on both points spring forth from the same diseased root. Uh, an exalted conception of the role of the institution in America. The court is eager, hungry, to tell everyone its view of the legal question at the heart of this case. Um, and tied in with this is another comment that he made. He said, 
that it's jaw-dropping. It is an assertion of judicial supremacy over the people's representatives in Congress and the executive. The framers of the Constitution created a judicial branch with limited power in order to guard their right to self-rule against the black-robed supremacy that today's majority finds so attractive. And so what Antonin Scalia is saying there, and this would seem to... Um, to, to be fitting with his, uh, his judicial philosophy is that the Supreme Court is supposed to have very weak power. It's not supposed to be throwing its weight around, for instance. And you could even extrapolate from what he's saying there that he doesn't believe that Marbury versus Madison should have, uh, should have happened or the, the interpretation of the court's power coming out of Marbury versus Madison should have happened. Um, so it would seem that he's totally against judicial activism there. And Look, we like to, at times, point out hypocrisy in the political figures that we cover. And so maybe if we were to go back years, perhaps even decades, we could find examples of Antonin Scalia uh, engaging in a bit of judicial activism. Or maybe we could go back about 24 hours when he struck down part of the Voting Rights Act, voting in the majority, to eliminate protections for minority voting in America. Uh, that is nothing but a case of judicial activism there. And so we don't even we don't even have to go back to the weekend to find an example of it. Uh, another case of judicial activism that Antonin Scalia engaged in. I don't suppose you remember a little case called Bush v. Gore. He got a little bit active there, and it had uh, pretty strong consequences, I would say, for the country. Even 13 years later, very strong consequences. Let's move on to his next comment. Antonin Scalia says, As I've said, the real rationale of today's opinion, whatever disappearing trail of its legalistic argle-bargle one chooses to follow, is that DOMA is motivated by bare desire to harm couples in same-sex marriages. And so uh, what's interesting there is that he has a problem with the fact that we are... I suppose creating a straw man version of what the opposition to same-sex marriage is, as if it's a very simple thing. But it is, in the end, a very simple thing. Now, they will occasionally throw up concern for the children or something like that. Those studies inevitably get destroyed. The, the, the children in same-sex couples do at least as well, in some cases better than couples brought up in opposite-sex uh, marriages. And so when you get rid of all that stuff, I think that it is about as simple an argument as it can be. And you don't need to take you know, a, an encyclopedic length tract to explain what the, uh, the people with the opposition to same-sex marriage think. You don't even need to do something as long as, say, a Harry Potter novel or something. I think they can be really struck down to just three letters. E-W-W. Ew. They have a moral opposition or a biological opposition to the sex underlying some of these marriages. They don't like it. Okay, and for one thing, Scalia there, now he wants to make it seem as if there's these deep philosophical reasons that they're opposed to same-sex marriage, but if you were watching the news, his other comments outside of this uh, minority opinion, he was talking nonstop about homosexual sodomy, just sodomy this and sodomy that. He wasn't so concerned about states' rights when he was giving his opinion today. It was mostly about the physical aspects of, of what was going on here. And so I, I had a problem with that. Uh, moving on to his next comment. Uh, I find it wryly amusing that the majority seeks to dismiss the requirement of party adverseness as nothing more than a prudential aspect of the sole Article 3 requirement of standing um, <clears throat> going on. As I have observed before, the Constitution does not forbid the government to enforce traditional moral and sexual norms. However, even setting aside traditional moral disapproval of same-sex marriage, or indeed same-sex sex, there are many perfectly valid, indeed downright boring, justifying rationales for this legislation. Their existence ought to be the end of this case. 
Um, now, I love that. So he says there that there's nothing in the Constitution whatsoever that says that the government can't enforce its view of traditional morality or sexual behavior. And what I like about that is if there's nothing in the Constitution that stops a traditional morality from being enforced, there's apparently nothing stopping an evolving or progressive morality from being enforced. And so if you can protect the way that people viewed homosexuals 175 years ago, I don't see why you can't protect uh, the view that we have of homosexuals today. And it's a little bit more progressive than they had back when they were wearing the white wigs and had wooden teeth. And so I love that he, he gave a little bit of uh, ammunition to our side there, perhaps without intending it. I already talked about the other rationales for the legislation. Um, he, he'll probably cite something about domestic abuse or bringing up children or the educational effects or something like that. But we saw when Prop 8 was being argued, when the, the, the appeal that would eventually lead to the banning of Prop 8 was appealed, the science is simply not on their side. He says, some will rejoice in today's decision and some will despair in it. That is the nature of a controversy that matters so much to so many. But the court has cheated both sides, robbing the winners of an honest victory and the losers of the peace that comes from a fair defeat. We owed both of them better. I dissent. He wraps up nicely there at the end. And I suppose in some, some legalistic sense, some philosophic sense, yes, the winners and losers in this case have been robbed of something. And perhaps if it, the case had been argued and the ruling had been argued in a slightly different way, it would be satisfying in some philosophical or legal sense. Now, I, I suppose for the winners in this case, they're just going to have to take at least some solace, some consolation from the fact that although they don't have the philosophical uh, underpinning that they wanted, they can now, after years or decades of conflict, finally marry the person that they're in love with. It's a Brian Fisher, anti-gay Brian Fisher from the American Family Association. He will be here Monday to discuss these Supreme Court rulings. I will certainly ask him, did he cry when he heard about the rulings? I will ask him that on Monday. I will ask him, does he realize he will be looked back at in the future as someone who, in their opposition to marriage equality, was equivalent to those who opposed racial integration or, or uh, any of the other things we've talked about. But that's not what I want to talk to you about today. That's for Monday. Today, he said, the Supreme Court has actually done something discriminatory to those who are anti-gay activists by their decision. Take a listen to what Brian Fisher had to say. But it could be for, for DOMA. Is oh, actually, let me, let me cue this properly, because I don't want you to miss the, the key part of this entire thing. Okay, here we go. If they were a mean-spirited uh, human being that wanted to relegate certain human beings to lower-tier, second-class steerage, status on the ship of state and but that's exactly what they've done to us Matt it seems to me they have identified us as second-class citizens mean-spirited homophobic bigots uh, well, yeah. who ought to be shunned from polite society it seems to me they've done to us exactly what they were falsely accusing us <laughs> of doing to homosexuals and how dare five people in a position like these individuals paint that kind of a brush across all of America, but that's what they did. And in all right, let's, let's uh, analyze what's going on here. First of all, 
they seem to be taking issue with the amount of the magnitude of a decision that five of the nine Supreme Court justices were able to make. It's interesting because when the Supreme Court pretty recently ruled for the first time that the Constitution, that the Second Amendment does provide for the individual right to bear arms, do you remember what the, what the decision was there, Lewis? It was a five to four decision. Right. Five individuals also made an, uh, a, a, a decision of significant magnitude I don't think that Brian Fisher and his buddies who, who appear on his radio show were so upset then. Number two, Brian Fisher talks about mean-spirited, homophobic bigots who ought to be shunned from polite society. I don't think he realizes who that would shun from society, and it's mostly Brian Fisher and his friends. Yeah, I mean, well, there is a difference between people like Brian Fisher and people like the Westboro Baptist Church. Oh, there, there's a difference, okay. There, you, you have to at least acknowledge that um, as long as, uh, you know, Brian Fisher doesn't walk around yelling, uh, die you fags, that we can at least make that distinction. Uh, he is not willing to openly use those terms in public, is all we can say, right? That's we, the point you're making. We can say that, yeah. The public way in which he presents his anti-gay bigotry is less harsh, potentially, than the way it's that still, the, of course, very damaging. I, <laughs> right. I, I'm aware of this. It's just different in that sense. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if that's the distinction he's trying to make. Is it, Natan? Uh, I don't think he's trying to make any logical distinctions <laughs> of any kind. I mean, overall, I do want to say one thing about him talking about five justices deciding. Yeah. I thought he was talking about the Voting Rights Act when he, when he started that sentence. I mean, honestly, what happened in this decision, and if you read some of it, you can see Justice Kennedy, who half the time it goes totally off the deep end and half the time is with the liberals correctly, like in this case. When he talks about DOMA, he basically says, you know, it, it's not about the motivations of the politicians that passed it. The only reason, if you... If you deductively reason your way out of what the law says, is the only reason to pass this law is to demean the quality and the rights of gay people. Right. So and it's not a question of whether Bill Clinton or whether the Republicans or the Democrats have anything against homosexuality. It's what's on the page. What's on the page has that as its only logical purpose. The sun it rose so yellow like buttercups in Wildflowers on the meadow give a scent of sweet perfume And I had been the country's length to see you give your hand Travelling to see you married by the sea Okay, in today's Oh My God segment, you know Brian Fisher, friend of the show. And uh, here's how he feels about gays, by the way. This is what he says about gays. Time a homosexual exercises any sort of selectivity at all when it comes to intimate matters, he is proving that it's a matter of choice. So he's compelled to follow those impulses. Now, it's interesting. You know, I, I was struck by the phrase... Now, anybody who says... That being gay or homosexual impulses are a matter of choice is someone who's actively suppressing their own homosexual impulses, right? There's no doubt about that, right? So this guy's, this guy's, uh, as we used to say when I was a kid, he's as queer as a three dollar bill. <laughs> <laughs> if we're a matter of, matter of choice, I mean, who would choose disco? <laughs> <laughs> Is that a callback? There you go. 
There you go. All right. I remember when I was, I, you know, we all have to make that choice about being, I remember when I was a kid, I was like, do I really want to watch, watch Dance Fever with Danny Terrio? <laughs> or do I want to go to prom? What do I, which one do I want to do? You know, Jimmy, it's Moose and Squirrel, not Moose and Steve. <laughs> You know, Jimmy, it's L-M-N-O-P, not L-M-N-O-Steve. That's right. <laughs> you, know, you know, Jimmy, it's, it's Stone Cold Steve Austin, not Stone Cold Steve Steve. <laughs> you know, Jimmy, it's energy equals math times the speed of light squared, not energy equals math times the speed of light Steve. <laughs> I love these Steve jokes. <laughs> I love those Steve jokes. So here, he's got a little bit more to say this time. 319. Their Philippians. glory, they glory in their shame. In their shame, their gayness is the they shame. They glory in their shame. They celebrate, they honor, they pride in things that ought to be matters of shame, humiliation, and embarrassment. And when you have the President of the United States, this is what is significant about this. The President of the United States out there honoring, celebrating sexual perversity. This homosexuality is a perversion of God's design for human sexuality. But now you have the President of the United States openly celebrating sexual deviancy. deviancy. So calling evil good and calling good evil. It's a, you know, it, it's like a, a, almost a milestone moment to have the President do this at a at a press conference to so openly, blatantly celebrate behavior, sexual behavior that we know is a perversion and a, a form of deviance in God's eyes. Okay, so there, so there is our friend uh, Fisher, <laughs> and now he went out with Alan Combs. Now he used to be the the better half of Sean Hannity and Combs. He was uh, better. Sean Hannity's bottom. <laughs> you know how he makes his money now is that you can actually hire he'll come to your house uh if for a private party you can hire him to come to your house and cower in the corner <laughs> he'll lose arguments yes and he'll lose arguments with anybody except the ultimate straw man except here he is and he's got this uh, brian fisher on his show and he asks him the question we all want asked god bless him how alan combs go get him alan you also say brian that uh because gays are selective when it comes to intimate matters, that proves that it's a matter of choice whether you're gay or straight. So simply because you're selective who you might have sex with, because you choose within a particular gender who you're attracted to, that means you could be attracted to either gender? No, it just demonstrates that people are not obligated to act on every sexual impulse that they experience. Well, have you ever had a gay impulse? Alan, <laughs> I'm not going to talk about no, that. That's exactly what a straight guy would say, right? Mm -hmm. that's a guy, hey, have you ever had a gay <laughs> The first thing a straight guy would say is, well, I'm not straight. I just don't like gays. But he would <laughs> yeah. say, I'm straight. Yeah. I just don't. Yeah. Wonder, I mean, I'm just wondering. Alan, I'm not, not going to go there. What, <laughs> about, what, what does that mean, I'm not going to go? How is that to a To the bathhouse. How is that a response you, to the question, have you ever you had a gay you cut out the part. He said, I'm not going to go there, girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, isn't that the... So when you say, I'm not going to go there, that is... What you're saying is, yes, of course I've had gay impulses. Because if mm -hmm. I didn't, I would say I didn't. Mm -hmm. Give it a rest, That's Alan. a simple yes or no question. We're not going to talk about Because that. maybe if you've been able to overcome your gay impulses, uh, <laughs> and you've been successful to do it, you could be a model for other people <laughs> who you'd like to see act the same way. 
the focus here, Alan, is that <laughs> everybody experiences sexual impulses that if they acted on those impulses, it would destroy them. Well, can you give me an example from your own life? Like, what would be some of yours? You've experienced them. I have. I've, I've experienced <laughs> them. Every man, every woman has experienced certain sexual impulses that if they acted on them, if they conducted themselves by yielding to those impulses, would destroy them. Ask Tiger Woods about that. Uh, yeah, you, you remember how when Tiger Woods destroyed himself, right? He's, destro yeah. he's destroyed now. <laughs> I don't know if you notice. He doesn't have any girlfriends or money. He's not winning tournaments. He's destroyed. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. He has all those things. <laughs> he's exactly the same guy he was, except he got rid of that old that battle axe he was hanging around with. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, he's straight, so it's completely irrelevant. Barely. Yeah, go ahead, Frank. Barely has two hundred million in the bank. Barely, he barely has two. What are you gonna? How's he gonna keep warm? He's hanging on. How's he gonna? Where's he gonna eat? <laughs> oh, and by the way, not for nothing. Uh, I know a lot of gay guys, and uh, yeah, they're destroyed. Yes, they, they are destroyed in their really nice houses and pleasant lives. I I don't understand what. No one's destroyed. What yeah. are you talking about? Do Doogie Hauser seems pretty good. He doesn't. Yeah. He seems pretty tight. Well, I don't think I've ever had sexual impulses that would destroy the society or the culture <laughs> or make me a deviant in some way. I mean, I honestly don't think that's ever happened, even in your eyes. But um, so I'm I'm surprised. But I, I wonder what impulses you're talking about. If if you've had them, I'd love to know what they are. Well, the focus, Alan, is on sexual conduct, sexual behavior, not on sexual impulse. That's what I the see. focus is. So you won't tell me whether you yourself have been able to overcome a gay impulse. Alan, give it a rest. <laughs> yeah. I, I, how is that, again, how is that any kind of comeback to have you ever had a gay, give it I'm a rest. I'm not convinced. That's like, a, I'm going to keep say just say yes and get it over with. Mm -hmm. It makes it worse. Mm-hmm. You know, We're not talking about impulses. <laughs> what? You should, you should just know that you you have destroyed our society if you've ever been nominated for a Tony Award. <laughs> <laughs> yes. By the way, the uh, gay impulse, worst selling a Suzu ever. Yes, yes, that is not a good car. The gay impulse. You know, Jimmy, it's Abercrombie and Fitch, not Abercrombie and Steve. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it, it might be Abercrombie and Steve. That might be the it one exception. It might be, actually. Adam and Steve, love and beauty, your true identity. Adam and Steve, pride, harmony, loving the God in me. Adam and Steve, facts, not theory, accept and let it be. Adam and Steve are meant to be divine philosophy, yeah. The Defense of Marriage Act, uh, passed during the Clinton administration, basically said that um, same-sex married couples were not allowed, it was basically two big parts of this. One, they were not to receive the benefits that... Uh, heterosexual married couples receive in terms of nearly uh, a thousand federal laws that implicate marriage, whether it's tax law, whether it's visitation rights, whether it's uh, Social Security benefits. Uh, it, it goes on and on and on. It also will implicate the immigration bill. Uh, one of the things that Leahy was going to bring up uh, was an amendment saying that same-sex partners um, would be eligible for green cards. That, that's all nullified now. They are all under federal law. If you are married in a state, 
that allows for um, same-sex marriage at this point, up until today, you will receive all the benefits of marriage that would accrue to a heterosexual couple. This is going to have implications in the military. It's going to it's going to have incredibly broad implications. The other question is the notion of reciprocity through the full, uh, full faith and credit uh, clause of the Constitution, wherein if I am married as a heterosexual man or woman, I guess, in New York State and I move to... Um, North Carolina. I'm just, I'm trying to, uh, it doesn't matter what state. North Carolina recognizes my marriage. However, we now have some states which have constitutional amendments saying that there is no such thing as same sex marriage. And there are some states which essentially have no affirmative nor negative laws or constitutional amendments regarding this. It is unclear to me at this point what the implications are if you are a uh, same-sex married couple from Massachusetts and you go to, uh, I don't know, uh, Texas. Clearly, Texas, because at this point, their state governments tend to be huge a-holes. Um, they would argue that you are not, if the, to the extent that the state gives any benefits uh, to the institution of marriage, you would not receive them. This is going to open up a lot of court cases, and which eventually will make their way to the Supreme Court. I do not know. I mean, it, it is impossible to predict with the Supreme Court how they would rule on anything at this point. Um, it depends, I guess, what their bosses in the Republican Party tell them to do. I, I guess we'd have to listen to Rush Limbaugh to see um, how the Supreme Court will rule in that case. But uh, those will be the uh, the implications. In California, Proposition 8, because the state of California did not defend, or should I say was not the plaintiff, in the case that uh, was brought by private individuals saying that um, the state had no right to overturn the uh, referendum, Prop 8, the court found that these plaintiffs could not prove that they were harmed by this in any material way and that the Ninth Circuit, which originally heard the case, should not have taken that case either. The reason why... Some folks, and in fact, uh, I think in dissent, it was Sotomayor and um, uh, one other uh, liberal justice, or maybe not. But the, the reason why Sotomayor, at the very least, was um, joined the dissent in that case was that she wanted to actually adjudicate that case on the merits rather than a procedural uh, grounds of standing. Because there is... And, and we're not clear yet because this is something that has to be sort of figured out with case law. There are some implications here to the idea that you as a private individual uh, 
could not uh, could not establish standing in this situation. So, for instance, a uh, a state says um, that we're going to establish a law that says um, uh, you're not allowed to put um, I, I don't know that you're you're not allowed to put uh, to pollute the st- uh, the the, uh, the the rivers. I mean, uh, some of this is is moot because of federal law. But just for for a moment, uh, indulge me. You're not allowed to pollute the rivers. Um, and uh, company uh, corporation A sues the state and says you can't do this. It infringes on my property rights or or some other thing. And um, uh, a judge finds you're correct. If there's to be a p- appeal of that case, and the state now decides, ah, eh, we're not going to, uh, we're not going to uh, appeal the decision. As an individual, I may not be found to have standing because of this precedent. Now, the thing that complicates this is that I, as an individual, might be able to argue that I can show demonstrable harm. Because I can no longer go swimming in that river, or I used to fish in that river, or some other harm that uh, befalls me because of this pollution, then arguably I have standing. It's a trickier case because, you know, short of Jesus weeping uh, and the potential uh, or trying to prove that somehow if um, two men or two women can get married, that somehow I'm harmed by this uh, is it, a much uh, harder row to hoe or road to hoe in the event that you need to row uh, uh, to hoe a road. Uh, so that that's where it becomes uh, that that becomes a question that we have yet to resolve and is going to be resolved with cases uh, I would imagine over the next five to ten years or or. Six months to five years. Who knows what that window is going to be. So in January, we're getting married. She's talking to me with her voice down so low I barely know what she's saying I understand because my heart and hers are the same and in January we're getting married the court giveth the court taketh the US Supreme Court is ultimately a political body which makes decisions based upon the politics of its majority Rarely is it spoken of thusly, but it is what it is. The last few days of its most recent term has shown this to be so. It has ever been so. Perhaps the hottest cases of the year were the same-sex marriage cases, an affirmative action case, and the Voting Rights Act case. One case was tossed out and sent back down to lower courts to grapple with. The same-sex cases involving DOMA, or the Defense of Marriage Act, and Proposition 8 
a referendum from California which sought to invalidate such marriages were narrowly decided, essentially, by one justice writing for five-four majorities. In fact, the same justice, Anthony Kennedy, formed the majority in both major cases, approving rights for one class and restricting it in another. Thus, as the swing vote, Kennedy has inherited the cherished role once held by retired Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Why one and not the other? Simple. One is the fruit of a growing, passionate social movement. The other, a movement in decline. And guess what? Movements matter. We should be wary of politics, for it is a wind that blows both ways. DOMA didn't become unconstitutional when five judges called it so. It was unconstitutional the day President William Jefferson Clinton signed it into law in 1996. And he, a constitutional law professor, knew it before the ink dry. But in 96, Clinton was running for re-election, just as House Republicans were gearing up to blast him. So he made a political decision. When Barack Obama came in, he, a constitutional law professor, upheld and defended DOMA until his administration bowed to pressure from gay rights activists and his people switched. Meanwhile, black civil rights folks, older, settled, in positions of prominence and influence, ignored the power of protest. Few demonstrations were mobilized. It was virtually quiet. Politics means far more than a voting booth. It means protest, agitation, and activism. One side got active. Guess which side won? From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. Activism. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days. And it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage? This law, he said, tells same-sex couples in all the world that their otherwise valid marriages are unworthy of federal recognition. This places same-sex couples in an unstable position of being in a second-tier marriage. This differentiation demeans the couple whose moral and sexual, con sexual choices the Constitution protects, and it humiliates tens of thousands of children now being raised by same-sex couples. This law interferes with the equal dignity of same-sex marriages by treating those persons as if they are living in marriages less respected than others. This federal statute, this law, is in violation of the Fifth Amendment. When the rulings come out like this, in stacks of paper this deep, in small print, and there's a bunch of dissents, and the dissents are long, and the rulings are long, and they all come out all at once, it can take a little time to comb through them to find the best stuff. I mean, yes, to find the, the bottom line of the ruling, is it thumbs up or thumbs down, but also to find the best quotes. The process of figuring out what the Supreme Court has just done starts with this. It starts with sprinting. The physical printed copies of the ruling are made available inside the court. And sometimes reporters themselves, but often interns working for news agencies, make sure they're wearing their fast shoes, and they grab the physical printed out copy of the ruling, and they sprint it out 
to folks like NBC's Pete Williams, who know exactly what part of the ruling to flip to right away to get the bottom line, to figure out who wrote the argument and who dissented, and to start looking for the best quotes. This may be a digital world, but in the Supreme Court world, the first word we all get about what just happened in the Supreme Court happens thanks to interns sprinting with paper that is hot off the non-metaphorical presses. This was the BuzzFeed.com map today, showing the route that the interns have to sprint at the Supreme Court to get the ruling from the court building to where the network TV reporters stand outside, ready to broadcast the news once they get it from the interns. For today's ruling, though, the sprinting was not just in Washington, D.C. Today, the same ruling was also printed out as soon as it was posted online. It was handed to an intern here in an office... No, wrong clip. There you go. Here, uh, in an office near the corner of VZ and Broadway... Uh, and then the intern, whose name is Gabe, with the ruling in hand, sprinted out onto the street and ran these five blocks up Broadway in Lower Manhattan and then ran up the steps of the building there into the Federal Immigration Court for New York City and handed over the ruling while it was still hot from the printer. He had taken it off five blocks south. And in so doing, by being that fast and making it there in time with the ruling in hand, Gabe the intern handed over that ruling and in so doing, he stopped the man you see on the right side of your screen here from being deported. His name is Stephen. He's legally married to the man you see on the left side of your screen. His husband, Sean. When Stephen ran into a visa snafu of some kind, the fact that he was married to a U.S. citizen should have been enough for him to not have to worry about being deported while he sorted out the visa problem. But until Gabe, the intern, sprinted into that courtroom today in Lower Manhattan with news of what had just happened at the Supreme Court in Washington, that immigration judge in New York was not allowed to consider Stephen to be a married man. His marriage was invisible to the court, and so Stephen was going to be deported until Gabe, the intern, arrived with this in hand. And Stephen's marriage, with the delivery of this ruling, became legally visible and his deportation was stopped. The DOMA project was helping Stephen and Sean fight their case. They've been helping them, and that's the place where Gabe interns. And, and Sean and Stephen's case is not at all over. It's not all won and settled. But the proceedings to deport Stephen stopped today at 10.30 a.m. Want to see Gabe the intern, who's the hero here? Look, God bless him, there's Gabe. And God bless the sneakers that he wore to work today. There are not that many cases in a lifetime where a court ruling instantly changes the circumstances of thousands of people's lives. That very day, that very morning when it happens, within 30 minutes. But that happened today. There are about 25,000 couples in analogous circumstances to Stephen and Sean, where one member of the couple is an American citizen and the other one isn't. Those couples' prospects and circumstances in terms of immigration changed dramatically today. Their lives changed radically today. For American couples where one spouse is a member of the military. Basic questions like whether you can live on base, whether you can have health insurance, whether you can get the child care for your kids that other married couples get on base. Those prospects and circumstances changed dramatically today. In any case where the things that you get because you're married redound to you from the federal government, those material facts of life just changed. And some of it is going to be instant, like stopping Stephen from getting deported today because Gabe the intern was fast enough. Some of it's going to take a while to figure out. So there was some discussion today that the Social Security Administration might have a particularly Byzantine path 
to figuring out how to treat all married couples the same now in terms of Social Security. But overall, because of what happened in the Supreme Court today, it is a matter of how and not if. The if is settled. It's going to happen. The federal law signed by Bill Clinton that banned the federal government from recognizing the marriages of same-sex couples, that law is dead. It is unconstitutional. And now the federal government, in its many iterations, will recognize those marriages just like everybody else's. It is as clear as day. It's right there on page 26. By treating those persons as if they are living in marriages less respected than others, this federal statute, this law, is in violation of the Fifth Amendment. But here's the rub. Look at the very next line of the ruling. This opinion and its holding are confined to those lawful marriages. Those lawful marriages that already exist. Ah. So that means that every same-sex couple who is married, or who will be married in the dozen states that allow that now, they just had their lives changed dramatically. You now will have all the rights that straight couples get federally. So that means Social Security and immigration and filing your taxes and veterans benefits and the military and all that. All federal issues will now redound to you just as they do to every other married couple in the country. That said, if you live in a state that does not allow same-sex marriage, even after these rulings today, you still cannot get married. This ruling does nothing for you. Yet. Today, during MSNBC's coverage of these rulings today, uh, Chad Griffin from the Human Rights Campaign was asked what he plans to do next now that these cases have been won in Washington, the DOMA case and the California Prop 8 case. And Mr. Griffin said he was going to go first to California with the California plaintiffs to celebrate in California, but then tomorrow he was going somewhere else to get back to work. It also says to that young person in Hope, Arkansas, or yeah, still in Altoona, Pennsylvania, that marriage equality is coming to them very soon. This entire team is on our way to California to celebrate tonight, and tomorrow morning I wake up and fly to Salt Lake City, Utah, to a red wow. state. To Salt Lake City? To Utah? Utah, where same-sex marriage is most assuredly not legal. The reason you go there next, though, is because here's what's going to happen. Some happy couple, looks like Sean and Stephen maybe, right? Some happy couple who's married in New York or married in Iowa is going to get transferred to Utah for work. And that couple with their kids pay their taxes and their own property together and whose lives are totally interwoven thanks to all the normal married boring stuff that interweaves our lives. That couple's going to move to Utah. Maybe they want to move to Utah. Maybe they got to. It's a work transfer whatever. But then what happens when they get there? What? Utah unmarries them? No, not here. It doesn't apply. You're married nationally, but you're not married in this state? How does that work? That does not work. And then this hypothetical couple arriving in Utah and realizing this ridiculous situation, they will sue. They will say, hey, we're not looking for a fight here, but this does not make sense. Either we're married or we're not. We cannot be legally married and not legally married at the same time. It can't be that the federal government and the state we came from and the state we got married say that we're legally married, but now that we're here, it doesn't count. It doesn't work. So they will sue. And you know what? They will win because of what happened today. It was 10 years ago today. The same justice who wrote today's decision striking down DOMA wrote the opinion in the last huge gay rights case before the court, which was Lawrence v. Texas. That case declared sodomy laws to be unconstitutional. But the conservative justice, Antonin Scalia, was having none of it. His side lost the argument, but Antonin Scalia wrote a dissent in the Lawrence case that day that has become legendary over time just for its sheer level of rage. Aside from the sheer joy, though, of seeing Justice Scalia rip through page after page of bigamy, 
incest, adultery, fornication, bestiality, deviant sexual intercourse, obscenity, masturbation. Aside from the sheer prurient pleasure of seeing Justice Scalia exclamation point himself through that very angry dissent. That very angry dissent 10 years ago did get one thing really, really right. Right there on page 15 of the angriest dissent of all time, he nailed it. This is from 10 years ago, and Justice Scalia was furious about this. He said, the Texas statute undeniably seeks to further the belief of its citizens that certain forms of sexual behavior are immoral and unacceptable. The Bowers decision held that this was a legitimate state interest, but the court today reaches the opposite conclusion. The Texas statute, it says, furthers no legitimate state interest. If moral disapprobation of homosexual conduct is no legitimate state interest, then what justification could there possibly be for denying the benefits of marriage to homosexual couples? Right. I think I feel differently about that than you do, but right. Justice Scalia raised this point in horror 10 years ago, 10 years ago today on the last big gay rights case that was, had its majority opinion written by Justice Kennedy. And he was saying, you know, you realize this ruling means gay people are going to be able to get married, right? You realize that? Yes, Justice Scalia, we realize that. And indeed, Justice Kennedy today cited that 10-year-old ruling twice when he wrote today that the federal government has to recognize all marriages that are recognized in the states, even if some of them have the gay but on this specific issue of Utah, what happens now in states that do not recognize all marriages? Everybody's been saying all day today that the court is essentially silent on Utah. The court doesn't say anything about states where same-sex marriage isn't legal. It's not really true. Once again, just like he did 10 years ago, Justice Scalia is pounding his chest and raging into the night angrily that this, his battle against gay rights is over. It's over because of this latest ruling. When that hypothetical couple that moved to Utah sues to try to make even Utah recognize that their marriage that is recognized by the federal government should be recognized by Utah too. When that happens, Justice Scalia says that today's ruling is going to give them everything they need to win that case and make Utah recognize same-sex marriages as well. He said in his dissent today, the view that this court will take about state prohibition of same-sex marriage is indicated beyond mistaking in today's opinion. He quotes all the court's reasoning about why the federal government has to recognize same-sex marriages, and then he says this, how easy it is, indeed how inevitable, to reach the same conclusion with regard to state laws denying same-sex couples marital status. He says it is only a pretense that today's prohibition of laws excluding same-sex marriage is confined to the federal government. He says the other shoe will drop about state laws banning same-sex marriage, quote, later, comma, maybe next term. Do you think he's right? He was right 10 years ago today. He was right the last time. If today's rulings mean not just that marriage equality will be true again in California and that 100 million Americans will live in states that afford not just skim milk second-class marriages but full-class marriages, even if you're gay, if it doesn't mean just that, but it also means beyond even those things. By the way, this also paves the way for all 50 states to recognize marriages equally, fully equally, much to Antonin Scalia's evident horror. Well, then today is an even bigger day than it seemed at first. Chris Perry and Sandy Steyer were two of the named plaintiffs in the California case, in the Prop 8 case that was decided today alongside DOMA.
Watch how they put it. We believe from the very beginning that the importance of this case was to send a message to the children of this country that you are just as good as everybody else, no matter who you love, no matter who your parents love. And today we can go back to California and say to our own children, all four of our boys, your family is just as good as everybody else's family. We love you as much as anybody else's parents love their kids, and we're going to be equal. We thank the justices for letting us get married in California, but that's not enough. It's got to go nationwide, and we can't wait for that day. It's not just about us. It's about kids in the South. It's about kids in Texas, and it's about kids everywhere. And we really, really want to take this fight and take it all the way and get equality for everyone. Everyone in this entire country. It's about kids in the South. It's about kids in Texas. Not just theoretically in the future, that's what this ruling today was about as well. It is underappreciated today, but this went way further than everybody's giving it credit for. And it's not my fault for not having the vision. Let's blame the silly law, so tell me what's your position. Never thought of the way. Today's activism segment comes to you, as always, in partnership with the Unfuck It Up Project, where creator Katie Goodman and director Katie Klebuzik encourage involvement over apathy by highlighting people and organizations that are doing good for their communities and the world. Today's campaign, Freedom to Marry. The Supreme Court's decision to overturn the Defense of Marriage Act was a huge civil rights victory and cause for celebration across the country. DOMA impacted even those same-sex couples who reside in states that recognize their marriages. Effective immediately, federal benefits and protections previously withheld, have been made available. But now that we've savored the win, we must recognize the fight isn't over. While the relief felt by those now able to secure green cards for their partners and jointly file federal tax returns is real and substantial, many benefits and rights are still out of reach. Section 2 of DOMA was left in place, meaning states can decide whether or not to recognize the unions of same-sex couples who wed in other states. With just 13 states plus the District of Columbia recognizing same-sex marriages, this leaves a lot of couples in limbo on social security and veterans' benefits, inheritance taxes, and other federal programs administered by the states. Freedom to Marry is a national organization on the ground in every state. Their Roadmap to Victory campaign was launched in 2003 and has no plans to let up until every state and territory in the U.S. recognizes same-sex unions. Their website, freedomtomarry.org, has a pledge, quote, to stand for love and freedom to marry for all, unquote, resources for same-sex couples and allies, information on where your state currently stands, and how to get involved. Every social and civil rights movement needs allies. If you haven't yet, now is the time to get involved and ask your government to recognize your neighbors in the LGBT community. The end of DOMA was just the beginning. The big celebration can't happen until we all have the freedom to marry. Links to today's campaign will be in the show notes at all the usual places, and you can visit the Best of the Left Facebook page for additional information on this and other activism opportunities and to share actions for possible use on the show.
now it's fucked up. Could you help unfuck it up? And then say, are you really so fucking busy? You can't take one fucking man's help unfuck it up. I'm willing to pick one thing to help unfuck it up. Won't you join me? Now this, 2013, is starting to look a lot like 1858. And a new civil war, hopefully this time without guns, could be on the horizon. In the decade leading up to the Civil War, the United States became increasingly divided as a nation. I mean, you had the northern states, New York, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts. They were going through this explosion of industrialization back then. And the southern states... We're still agricultural, you know, plantation states. And while the pre-Civil War northern economy was based on free wage labor, the southern economy depended on slavery. Looked more like a feudal empire than a democratic republic. And the differences between these two societies, because that's really what they were, they were two distinct societies, influenced every, every aspect of American politics, creating divisions in Congress, conflicts between the states, and even divisions within families. And the pressure of all that eventually led to the secession of most of the South from the Union and the bloodiest conflict in American history. That civil war happened over 150 years ago. But in the wake of the past two days' Supreme Court rulings, the history of the period leading up to the Civil War looks as relevant as ever. Today, with its decision in the case of Hollingsworth v. Perry, the court legalized same-sex marriage in California, setting off waves of celebration, an entirely appropriate celebration throughout that state and the country. But the, court's, but the court's ruling, along with this decision striking down DOMA, leaves a lot of issues unresolved. In deciding Hollingsworth v. Perry, the court did not issue a broad ruling legitimizing gay marriage throughout the country. It simply reconfirmed an existing lower court decision that struck down California's 2008 voter-approved ban on same-sex marriage. That means that while Californians are now free to marry whoever they want, gay and lesbian residents of red states like Mississippi and Alabama are going to have to wait until their states pass marriage equality laws. This creates another division between the two kinds of states that make up today's America, the, the FDR blue states and the Ronald Reagan red states. Just like the northern and southern states in the decade leading up to the Civil War, the Roosevelt blue states and the Reagan red states are fundamentally different societies. The most obvious difference, of course, attitudes towards gay marriage. If you compare a map of states that allow some sort of protections for gay couples with a map of last fall's presidential election results, they line up pretty closely. There are a few outliners, liars. But the differences don't stop with gay marriage. With blue states like Oregon and Vermont pushing forward with progressive experiments in health care, Texas and other Reagan red states have rejected the Obamacare Medicaid expansion and refused to cooperate with what looks like, you know, particularly when you look at what happened in California, hey, lower prices exchange, cool. It's going to be a big success. But the red states don't want to have anything to do with it. Red states have higher rates of obesity, higher rates of teen pregnancy, score lower on almost every important indicator of social development, have lower minimum wages, more restrictive labor laws than their blue counterparts. If you look at a map of states with a union-busting right to work for less laws, it matches up pretty closely with the red states from the 2012 presidential election results. And now, thanks to the Supreme Court gutting the Voting Rights Act, Reagan red states like Texas have renewed their effort. I mean, these are just, they just did it last night. Renewed their efforts to keep people of color from voting or minimize the impact of their vote using harsh voter ID laws and redistricting laws. 
So America in 2013 has a startling number of similarities between um, with America in 1858. We have two separate sets of states, blue states modeled after the social and economically progressive New Deal and red states following in lockstep with the help the rich screw the poor policies of the Reagan revolution. And far from uniting the country under one set of policies or principles, I think the court's decisions on voting rights acts and same-sex marriage, these two, take, take them both. This is the last two days. These two are going to intensify the differences and push red and blue states even further in very different paths. So what happens next? Don't know. But as Abraham Lincoln said back in 1858 on the eve of the Civil War, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Uh, hi, Jay. This is Rob from Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm calling to express some disappointments in uh, the fact that you had raised a subject which I thought was of cornerstone importance, and there haven't really been any responses to it. Um, it the, the subject sort of got dropped. Now, while you were at the Netroots Festival, you had played uh, an episode which was uh, a previously aired episode, which I thought was outstanding. And if anybody failed to listen to it because it was a rerun, I think you made a grave mistake. And at the end of that episode, Lee Camp had one of his famous rants in which he brought up a subject which, which is really, really near and dear to me, and that is that evil never stops planning. Evil is always working on their agenda, whereas good people are just sitting with their TV dinners in front of watching, uh, you know, Dancing with the Stars or something. That You know, every time good gets a small victory, uh, they tend to rest on their laurels. And at the end of that rant, you put out a gauntlet of a challenge to say, if good is going to have a plan, what, sh what form should that plan take? And nobody seemed to respond to it, or at least I haven't heard any responses aired. So I'm not the one who's going to devise a plan. I'm not that great at things. But there's one element of that plan that I think really needs to be a big part of it. The problem really is that there's money in politics. And, there, and, and I really think that no matter how important your pet issue is, you might be interested in uh, uh, race relations. You might be very interested in LGBT rights. You might be interested in, in a lot of different things, but everything that you are interested in, everything that you consider your pet issue, would be aided if the playing field were flattened out so that huge money interests didn't have a disproportionate effect on outcomes of all these issues. Everybody who has any pet issue needs to put getting money out of politics first before they work on their pet issue. Money out of politics might not be your favorite issue, but it needs to be. It really has to be the first step in any plan that the left puts forward. That's my opinion, and I'm hoping to hear some other responses to this. Thanks, Jay. This is Raleigh Rob signing out. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Dan Platt of Occupy Albany, New York. Uh, I wanted to weigh in on the uh, question of options, options for progressive movement. 
I want to start by going off on um, how Occupy uh, as a movement. Basically, well, okay, one of the things we did in the park was exactly the kind of thing that you're suggesting we do, brainstorm about how we can be on the offensive. Because during the Bush years, progressives, liberals, we just kind of reacted to everything. If you look at the bookshelf on the Barnes & Noble, liberal books were all about reacting to how stupid Republicans were in the Bush years or trying to defend the almost the social welfare programs of the New Deal from Republican attack and as more and more of it gets chipped away. The answer, I see, as a young person, is to build a new consensus, a new coalition around new issues, a new New Deal, or a basically 21st century New Deal, as the New Deal was the 20th. So in Occupy, something we did in the park was experiment with consensus, horizontality, horizontal government decision-making. There's also other things that grew out of Zuccotti Park. For example, the Move Your Money movement. Get it out of the big banks, put in credit unions. Buy from co-ops. Build the underground economy, or rather a non-profit economy, with Kickstarters and other types of platforms to uh, build an economy from the ground up with communities first. And it, as you can see, uh, and since 2011, uh, the bookshelf at the BNN, uh, Barnes & Noble, when I was looking at it, it it's, it's now half liberal progressive books about like what do we do now democracy project and all kinds of other books you know the garden of democracy really great stuff so there's an explosion of new ideas and books out there from uh blogs and articles and the occupy movement itself on, on a separate note uh there's also participatory economics which is kind of this alternative economic theory along with other kinds of econo uh, alternative economics a simple example is to look up participatory budgeting, where a, say, a councilman or a representative simply takes money that they're allocated by the state, usually by default, and simply gives it to the people to decide. And you have basically meetings on a public front to decide what to do with it, usually for infrastructure spending. So look up Paracom, and, uh, and that's just some of the options. So this is really rambling. Maybe I'll leave another one to be more concise. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or an activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So today I, I added a little bit of extra content in the show to sort of mark the occasion, uh, celebrate the good news coming down from the Supreme Court, and, and now I, I just want to tell you about a little bit of even more additional bonus content. Uh, if you know, maybe you've heard me mention before, but members now, members are the ones who actually pay to support the production of this show, you know, like five bucks a month or, you know, on a yearly basis. Those people now get access to a totally separate bonus content show that I, I've been producing. And so I just want to mention what's, what's been going on behind those scenes. Uh, so far, I've told the story behind how the show got the theme song that it has, um, which actually through the process of telling that story then made me decide to change it. <laughs> so, so, you know, the, the introductory theme song has stayed the same. The, uh, the outro theme has now changed and, but you can hear my thinking behind at least 
the first half of that uh, in the bonus show. Um, there was an episode I did discussing the possible positive effects of gender-neutral pronouns because Sweden came up with a gender-neutral pronoun. Instead of his or her, they have a gender-neutral word for that. And you know, so I went into a little bit of a discussion on that that I thought was interesting. There was a whole addition using – uh, you know, bonus voicemails that didn't go in the regular show. There's a discussion of the private prison industrial complex and money and politics using excellent messages from, uh, you know, callers to the show. So that was excellent. And then the most recent one I did was actually my story of going to Netroots Nation in California. And I, I talked about three excellent documentaries I saw while there. They were like special screenings at Netroots. And so I play the, the trailers and then talk about those, uh, in that episode. And then close out the, that episode by talking about what happened on my way home and sort of in, that I thought was interesting. I mean, it's for everyone to judge for themselves, but I, I liked it. So all of that, of course, is available to members. Uh, you can get details at the membership tab at bestofleft.com. But of course, you know, it's, it's not just for the content. You feel good about supporting the show, you'll feel warm and fuzzy, but then this is like your little, uh, this is like your tote bag, your thank you for uh, helping support the show. And then not only that, you get access to full archives of the show, as well as sort of like a, like a potpourri gift basket of additional radio clips I've put together. They're not necessarily political, but they're all excellent and, you know, they're free and available elsewhere, but I've sort of collected them together and made them available to members uh, for their convenience. So if you want to support the show or any of that other stuff I just talked about sounds like something you want to check out, go ahead and sign up for a membership at the website and I'll get the details to you as quickly as possible. But that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. If you're not already subscribed to get every single episode, there are lots of ways you can do it. You can sign up through iTunes, get the standard RSS feed, or as the kids are doing, get one of the smartphone apps. People have Stitcher and Best of Left has its own app dedicated specifically to the show itself, made for iPhone and Android. And thanks especially to those who support the show, as I've just been saying, uh, members and one-time donations is absolutely how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories and wonder what we're missing We can't see past our own sad stories and forget how to listen See past our own sad stories and one